Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. I'm going to, um, in the next half an hour, guide you through creative approaches to education and discuss why it's important to look at this holistically. Um, I live in Wales and we're in a fortunate position here at the moment in that a new curriculum is on its way, which gives teachers much more autonomy and freedom to think expansively about the curriculum. And yes, I did say their curriculum, um, because the policy documents, um, which are really interesting, only give the bare bones of what schools are expected to teach. Um, So it'll be up to schools to then think about their local needs and design their curricula around those needs. It's hugely exciting, but as you can imagine, so very, very daunting too. Um, There's also some overt and covert resistance um, to avoid along the way and a small matter of a global pandemic to deal with before um, the curriculum is introduced in 2022. However, um, my friends in England are looking on with envy as, um, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity we're getting. But I always point out to them that the change in policy is not in itself enough to create the paradigm shift that many hope to see in the education system. Um, The whole ecosystem needs to be considered um, with people at all levels modelling the approach. So it's going to be a challenge. Um, Before I go any further, it might be um, interesting for me to share my background and experience with you. Um, I was a secondary school teacher of art and head of citizenship and PSHE in North Yorkshire for 12 years. I then moved back to Wales where I worked in uh, further education and completed an MA in practitioner research. And then in 2015, a wonderful post came up because I became the regional lead for a national creative learning program here in Wales, supporting learning engagement and creativity by partnering schools with creative professionals. Um, and so the idea was that by bringing people from outside the education sector in, it disrupted normal habits and challenged teachers to think, think differently. Um, And then in May this year, I set up my own enterprise called Tubed. It's Welsh for I wonder or what if, aiming to help schools and teachers to be open to innovation and change by really trying to be curious and open to new ways of working. So... um, This idea of creative ecosystems isn't a new idea. It's really building on ideas um, from previous authors. Um, But if this is new to you, then there's some suggestions here for places to start looking at this a bit more closely. Um, I've recommended um, three pieces of literature here. One of them, um, well-known name, Sir Ken Robinson, who's talked um, a lot about creativity and about arts in education. Um, but within the book Creative Schools, he wrote with Lou Arnica, he talks about ecology and climate, thinking beyond just art-based practices and very much thinking about this idea of an ecosystem and the other kind of elements that are needed to kind of scaffold and support this kind of new approach. And then we've got Lucas, Claxton and Spencer. They don't actually use the term cycles of nature. I've just put that in there. I've just been using that because it's my interpretation um, 
and it's because it's the way that they emphasize the importance of viewing learning as a lifelong endeavor that it's not about learning being a destination you do your exams you do GCSEs you do your A levels and that's it it's about developing these dispositions within children within students for lifelong learning so just as ecosystems rely on photosynthesis or water cycles the creative ecosystem needs dispositions or habits of mind to support the cyclical nature of learning rather than like I say seeing it as a destination and then again rewilding education again that's my term um, Eisner's paper on um, the arts and education is well worth a read um, but the phrase here that I've used on rewilding education is because um, this idea within the paper is about not a revolution. It's about leveraging, um, using elements from the arts, thinking about how they could be used to move away from the current obsession with total control and standardization. So I should say at this point that my thinking about all this isn't fixed. I'm playing with like, these ideas at the moment and it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this presentation is because I want to have a conversation about this. I want to hear your thoughts and perspectives too along the way. So um, on that note, before we go any further, I wonder if you could put in the chat box or whether you're brave enough to meet yourselves to tell us what does the word creative mean to you? So I'm just going to give you a few minutes if you want to put in the chat box some ideas or um, if you want to unmute yourselves, please do. I can't actually see the chat box. So um, Abby, sorry, I don't know if you, if you wouldn't mind just reading a couple out for me. Yeah, starting to get some great comments. I encourage more, but um, we've got one, one saying uh, originality, mm -hmm. uh, transformation, Linking things in a new way, which I particularly like. Coming from the heart. Wow. Pushing boundaries beyond fixed definitions and assumptions. That is brilliant. Thank you. Um, and that's a really good kind of baseline assessment for me because no one's mentioned the arts. And that's, from my experience, been a difficulty sometimes when we're talking about creativity, creative learning, creative education, is because some people perhaps who come from a more traditional paradigm make these assumptions, make these interpretations, thinking about creativity as just belonging to the arts. But in actual fact, it's what you've just laid out. It's exactly that. And particularly, I like the one about making connections. It's about making those connections to the things that are seemingly unconnected. Um, of course, it can be about the arts, um, as in Eisner's paper I've just signposted. There's a lot of good practice to learn from the arts, and the dispositions or the habits of mind that Lucas, Claxton and Spencer advocate can be nurtured through the arts as well. However, like you, I've come to an understanding about cre creativity in its wider sense. Um, creativity doesn't thrive in isolation. There are other conditions within the ecosystem that need to be in place to support it. So just something for you to ponder on. So this creativity is about ways of thinking and about ways of being. It's about possibility thinking. More questions that start with what if, could I, what would happen, being open to learning and 
and learning because sometimes we pick up habit bad habits along the way or sometimes if we want to develop new habits we need to take away some of those old ways of thinking it's about being agile it's not about changing mindsets because mindset seems to sort of um, connotate that it's about a fixed mindset again moving from one fixed mindset to another fixed mindset it's more kind of mind flex if you want to play on words it's about being agile being flexible and it's about being comfortable with ambiguity without trying to control it so this is the creativity that employers are calling out for at the moment the creativity that will help us solve the crises of the future the creativity that opens up our capacity to be curious about ourselves and others deter to deter against um, increasing polarization and othering um, in terms of teaching it's the creativity that brings learning to life that and, understands the role of novelty, I suppose, and the relevance in the process, as well as exploration and connecting concepts within and across disciplines. If you're into complexity theory, I'm sure you all are, you'll have heard of Dave Snowden, who developed the Knevin framework, and he's got a good way of describing what we need within society, within systems. Um, he says that we need more chefs instead of people who read recipe cards. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. It's that understanding, um, having a knowledge base, but being able to be flexible with it. So I've talked a little bit about creativity and kind of um, untangled a little bit um, about what we mean in, in defining creativity. But what about ecosystems then? So some key words we might use to describe an ecosystem are equally valid when we're discussing education systems. They're massively complex to begin with and diverse, yet we try and order them to make them predictable and use a one-size-fits-all approach despite each habitat and community requiring very different responses. Their effectiveness relies on um, interact interaction, relationships and cooperation yet we put in place control measures which amplifies competition and inequality. Through trying to command and control, we lose sight of the purpose of education sometimes, and teaching becomes mechanical and narrow. But this isn't news, it's what we do as human beings. We try to harness education in the same way we dominate nature. But guess what? Neither has benefited from it. So... In my mind, to begin building creative ecosystems, we need to firstly roll back this obsession with an authoritarian kind of paradigm um, in education and accept that there are certain things outside of our control. It's a tough sell. Um, this is a framework I um, created five years ago. I mentioned earlier that um, I was working in an FE college um, in an arts, arts faculty, actually. And um, for my MA dissertation, I wanted to understand what the students thought about feedback. And um, unexpected to me, this took me down a bit of a rabbit hole because the findings actually illuminated an issue that I'd never recognised before, particularly within arts education, which is often seen as something more progressive, more open, um, um, more focused on kind of equity and so on. But on the left, um, you'll see that there are behaviours and attitudes that students identified as being stifling, detrimental to their ability to accept feedback, learn and develop. 
um, something I called the authoritarian paradigm. And then on the right, you'll see behaviors and attitudes they identified as supporting them to thrive, develop agency and self-confidence, and most importantly, act on feedback that was given to them. And this is the democratic paradigm. So it's the first time I'd been teaching at this point for over 13 years, but it's the first time within my kind of professional life that I'd come across this idea of kind of democracy within education. So it was quite exciting for me. But um, I'm not saying here that the staff behaving in the authoritarian paradigm on the left were ogres or they were bullies. Often this disposition disposition is just a reaction to the pressures and expectations of performance measures or it's a genuine desire to to support students without realizing the consequences. Um, As I said in the last five years I've been working on a national program in Wales here, um, a creative learning program and one One project particularly stands out for me because we were working with a math teacher in a secondary school and we partnered him with a drama practitioner. So the idea was that we weren't teaching the math teacher drama approaches, but the idea was that this drama practitioner would show different ways of working, come in with new ideas. And um, the math teacher was fantastic because quite early on in the project what he realized what he observed was that the students that were in his class who were usually quite shy and reticent when they were with the drama practitioner they were completely confident and open and willing to take risks and try new things and the math teacher asked himself why why am I am I seeing a completely different character to this class and so he, he did his own research and he did a survey with the young people um, and asked for anonymous responses. And the responses came back to him to say that, you know, within your classroom, we know that we don't have to fail. We don't have to try and stumble because you're so ready to support us. Often that actually shows itself in kind of spoon feeding us. And so we don't have to work outside our comfort zone. And so for him, there was kind of this realization that there was some of these kind of authoritarian kind of aspects that had kind of creeped into his teaching that he'd never really realized. And for him, it was him trying to be supportive of his students. And so throughout this program, process he starts to really think about how he could take a step back still be supportive but in a very different way by thinking more about these kind of democratic approaches so the whole thing is just really sort of fascinating to me um and something that this this kind of framework has kind of really developed my way of thinking particularly over the last five years but As I said, I did this research within an arts college. So this is why I'm a little bit skeptical about creative learning being seen as art education without seeing it through the prism of the wider ecosystem. Um, I think we're falling into the trap of simplistic thinking if we just think that art is the only answer. And if we do more art, then we will reimagine education. There's a little bit more to it than that. Um, There's an awful lot we can learn from the arts, but seemingly art educators are just as liable to turn to a kind of command and control disposition if the culture within that setting setting encourages it. 
Um, as I said, it's interesting to reflect back on this framework, having now been involved in the Lead Creative Schools program for the last five years, because the democratic paradigm really does sum up the kind of scaffolding uh, that needs to be considered when thinking about creative learning and creative ecosystems. Um, one of the things teachers um, would notice quite early on working with creative practitioners was that they had a different way of working. Um, they had um, different, differing styles and approaches, but more than that, they would speak differently to children. They would co-construct the learning by engaging student voice. Um, there's a brilliant piece of research on this by Nottingham University looking at um, artist signature pedagogies, um, if you wanted to look at that a bit more. Um, it's just a really fascinating um, example of when we have a teacher and an artist coming at education from a different paradigm on what can actually happen um, when we do um, you know take those kind of creative risks in terms of professional learning so um, something for you to think about again use the chat box or if you want to unmute yourselves please do so on a scale of one to ten how do you feel in times of uncertainty or when you have to work outside your comfort zone or if you're in an ambiguous situation where the path ahead isn't at all clear. So 10 being the most confident, one being not at all confident, whereabouts on that scale would you put yourselves? So again, it's thinking about yourselves in times of uncertainty, and we've had a brilliant example of that most recently. Or when you have to work outside your comfort zone or in ambiguous situations, how does that make you feel? Have we had any tens, Abby? <laughs> any ones? Uh, ranging between four and nine, um, which, uh, yeah, mostly sort of six, sevens, eights. Thank you. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? And <laughs> the reality is I'm not sure if anyone enjoys it um, and if anyone feels confident with it. Um, but it's one of those things that the more that you do it, the more normal it becomes and the fear eventually kind of subsides and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this today as well this is outside my comfort zone although I've done this and I've done so much public speaking in the last five years it's still something unless I do it regularly it's just um it, it's a really difficult job um but it's an important thought to hold on to because as we look at the next slides you'll see how important it is um in terms of within education, particularly for teachers and leaders, to think about this and to make um, conscious efforts to move outside their comfort zones quite regularly. So we've seen how this um, kind of authoritarian democratic dy dynamic affects students and their capacity to, to learn, but how does it affect teachers? Well, it's probably no surprise to learn that democratic paradigms also help teachers to develop agency and confidence, which allows them to take risks, as I was just talking about, to move outside of their comfort zones and collaborate with students. 
These quotes that you can see at the moment are from a recent piece of research I undertook on teachers who participated in the Lead Creative School, school Scheme. It's going to be published um, in the autumn um, in the peer-reviewed journal um, by um, IPTA, the International Professional Development Association, and it's their practice journal. Um, both quotes, it may surprise you, are from the same teacher. The first quote on the left is their reflection on their sense of identity um, before taking part in this Lead Creative School scheme. And the second quote is how they see themselves now, having worked with an artist for eight to ten weeks in their classroom. And that's the change. So, again, this is a fascinating um, finding for me because the first one the first quote when politically impossible to reject an ineffective initiative so the teacher is saying from his professional standpoint it's an often he would have to work with ineffective initiatives but he found the best way to make them work so there's a sense of feeling disempowered there there's definitely no agency it's about top-down approaches and having to make things work whereas what we see with the democratic paradigm on the right is about now this understanding and having the tools to be able to think differently to really rely less on detailed planning to serve other people much more of a focus on the purpose of education and thinking about how pupils can co-construct and collaborate within that um, within a kind of creative classroom of being able to develop ideas together and plan together so the culture hasn't changed from the beginning to the end of this process the culture in the school hasn't changed the leadership hasn't changed. Policy hasn't changed because the new curriculum isn't coming in until 2022. So what is driving this change? Yes, they've worked with an artist, but what else? Because this is something that I'm often asked in that I'm guessing that a lot of people here today understand what we mean by creative approaches to teaching and learning, creative ecosystems. It's kind of preaching to the converted. But the question I'm often asked is, how do I persuade my peers? How do I persuade other teachers or school leaders to understand this? So I was interested in drilling down really in this research to try and find out what caused this change. I should say before just moving on that this squiggly line is purposeful because I did go for a straight line to begin with and I thought well no that that might give you the impression that this change this transformation was clean and tidy suddenly they were in one mindset and then they ended up somewhere else these processes are often very very messy there's a, a huge dip usually right at the beginning where there's a feeling of this is so outside my comfort zone I don't know if I could carry on um, but because they have the support of those artists with them that really is crucial because they act as a kind of mentor sort of take them through that kind of change process so um, yeah incredibly messy um, 
um, organic processes they are really uncontrollable um, very different to you know normal kind of practices within education so as I said I really wanted to sort of dig deeper here to really find out what caused this transformation we interviewed five teachers altogether for this research so it was only small scale but um, it was interesting because there were patterns within um, the feedback we were getting and so we were able to come up with quite clear kind of findings and conclusions from it. Um, so I thought this would be of interest today because a question like I say I'm often asked is how do we help our colleagues to understand that a change has to be made um, but the problem is it's a bit of a catch-22 situation and I'll explain a bit more about that. So what you're seeing in front of you at the moment is um, six drivers. That's what we identified. There were six drivers in changing from this kind of quite traditional approach to teaching and learning to thinking more openly, creatively, expansively. Um, the less significant themes have been presented as those furthest away from the centre and the impact is illustrated as the size of the circle the theme inhabits. So, for instance, you can see curriculum reform there and national in initiative, which was the Lead Creative Schools programme. Um, and it was a partnership between Welsh Government and Arts Council of Wales. So those are the two kind of policy factors, if you like. They were mentioned, but in a very kind of fleeting way. Um, it was quite clear that policy had very little significance or impact on the change and the transformation these teachers made values you can see were hugely significant but they're not as close to the drivers as the other three large circles so many of the teachers talked about feelings of frustration and anxiety before taking part in the program because their values um, and understanding of purpose within education were just not aligned with what they were being asked to do so however these values and sense of purpose did not have an impact on the transformation because how could they? They existed before the programme. So, and those transformations, those changes to practice didn't happen before the programme. So there was something happening here beyond values and beyond purpose, although they were important. So the three main drivers, first one I'll talk about is um, observing and working alongside creative practitioners um, gave them a toolbox to be able to align their values with their teaching practice so those two things suddenly joined together and it was kind of a eureka moment of feeling that this is what education is about this is what teaching is about but before that they just didn't have the tools or the toolbox to make it happen there was no blueprint for them so if you think about schools and think about teaching and particularly if I think of my own experience I can't think of many teachers who are doing things differently when I was teaching there was a pattern and everybody was expected to teach according to this pattern and you were judged on teaching to this pattern both internally and externally by Ofsted or Eston here in Wales so 
this was a big thing for the teachers. So suddenly these creative practitioners who came from all sorts of backgrounds, they weren't just drama practitioners and artists. We had chocolatiers, robotic experts. I mean, this was creative practitioners in its really broadest sense. Gardeners, all sorts of people, architects. But what they brought into the classroom with a teacher was just this idea of doing something different and showing a different model, a different way of being. The second big, big driver here was witnessing the impact on their own learners. So all of this professional development was happening within the classroom. It wasn't about a teacher going out on a one-day course and then coming back and having to implement what they learned. Because, again, that is problematic. Um, if I go back to the research I was doing in the art college on feedback, at that time I was following all the guidance. I was following the research on assessment for learning by people like Black and William, but it just wasn't working for me within my context. So what the teachers were seeing here was that if we go back to the description of the ecosystem, it's that each habitat and community requires very different responses. So they were able to develop unique solutions to the problems and the frustrations within their own classroom and the kind of personal response to student needs. And when they could see how that was impacting on children, that was a huge then lever for them to change the way that they were working. And then the third one, um, I just really like this kind of phrase, working close to the edge of chaos. Um, I think it, <laughs> it's a brilliant kind of idea, um, which would scare a lot of people. But um, the idea comes from complexity theory again, and it's about disruption to the status quo. And we often, as we you know, go through adulthood, we, we find ways of working that are comfortable. Um, and suddenly what happens is that we, we become blind to thing, things, to problems um, that really should be quite obvious. I mean, I've got a, a, an example of that at the moment in that we've got a broken toilet ever since before lockdown. But because we've put up with it for so long, I keep forgetting to call a plumber. You know, the problem is just there. It's part of just every day. And so, again, within education, this happens that sometimes we just need to disrupt, be able to see things for what they are. Um, there's an author called Kleiman who describes the edge of chaos as the space where creativity, energy and emotion are at their peak and risk taking and excitement are intrinsic components. And I think that's a lovely way to put it, because really that's what we were hearing from the teachers within this research. There was so much um, not just talk about pra practical ways of seeing the impact and doing things differently they talked about the change in emotional terms and what they were really talking about is this idea of head heart and hands education where things were suddenly colliding it wasn't thinking about social and emotional education as something separate something over there but that this is part of good practice, good pedagogy, um, and it should be um, connected to what we're doing in the classroom every single day. So um, I think we're coming to uh, the last slide at the moment. So 
creative ecosystems and education, I've touched on a few things and then I've just um, alluded to some other things um, because there's a lot that I could talk about with this. But to sum up, these are the attributes we need to consider if we're reimagining education and thinking about more creative and expansive approaches. And it's not so much the what, but it's the why and the how. Um, like I say, the teachers we've worked with and spoken to and done research with, they really understood, they really had quite strong values about education and purpose about education. I don't think anyone goes into teaching thinking, right, I'm just going to teach to the test. Um, there's a different thing that's driving teachers. And like I say, it can be frustrating if once they get into a kind of pattern of practice that those values aren't really sort of addressed. But the real progress for me will be when we begin talking about these things in a holistic way. I said at the beginning that when I was a teacher, I taught art, I taught citizenship, and I taught PSHE. And all three were taught as separate subjects. But I would ask why? They belong to each other. They connect with each other. They interact with each other. And is it our pattern thinking about education that makes us believe that we should deliver these subjects in isolation? which just re results in, at the end of the day, um, more pressure on timetables because we've got more and more subjects. So one of the biggest barriers that stand in the way of change, of course, and um, it's kind of an elephant in the room, I suppose, is the current examination system, which has been so horribly exposed this past week. But maybe, because now the president has been set, maybe we can see some movements and possibly some change there, we'll see. Um, but yeah, in an, it, to finish off, these would be my kind of attributes of what I see at the moment. And like I say, I'm not fixed in this thinking. It's something that I'm still kind of trying to develop myself. So I would absolutely love to hear your thoughts on this, whether you want to... Um, chat in the chat box, write your comments in the chat box, or please unmute yourselves and it would be brilliant to have some questions and maybe a discussion. Can I throw something into the discussion while everyone's thinking? Please, yes. <clears throat> I don't know if you remember, um, you're too young. <laughs> in 2002, some of us managed to get the law changed. Um, to allow kids to sit on governing bodies. In all schools, as associate governors, they couldn't vote, but it was a start. And uh, at the time, I was researching the impact on schools that involve kids in governance. It was very, very positive, I must say, even though only a minority of schools did it, the outcomes were really exciting and at the same time I did some work for an organization called Creative Partnerships. I don't know if it still exists but it was a big attempt by the Labour government to bring creative practitioners into schools and into classrooms and uh, I did some work for Creative Partnerships which was basically to evaluate the effect on the value of the creative practitioners when kids were involved in the decision-making around how to organise um, the introduction of the creative practitioners into the school. 
And I particularly looked at where governors were concerned, as they always were, in decisions around participating with creative partnerships. When kids were on the governing bodies, the actual introduction of the creative practitioners was far more effective and long-lasting than when the kids weren't involved in those decisions. And I didn't hear you make much mention. I know in Wales there's quite a lot of emphasis on student participation in decision-making in a way that's fallen by the wayside in England, but it's still very much part of the scene in Wales. Um, I wonder if you could comment a bit on how kids could be involved or how kids have been involved in what you've seen happening in Wales. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Derry. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. I didn't mention creative partnerships, but um, we learned a lot with this programme from creative partnerships, or the research, or the documentation that was developed from the learning in that programme, which lasted nine years and is unfortunately finished now in England. Um, we then developed it um, for our programme in Wales. And um, as you say, um, as in creative partnerships, there was a big emphasis on children's voice and um, being used in terms of more than just school council, but really having authentic decisions and um, uh, real value being given to their voice. Um, one of the really exciting things um, to be part of with this programme um, was helping schools to really understand what this meant, what it meant to really involve pupils fully in these projects and in their learning. Um, you said, Derry, that um, things may be a little bit better in terms of um, pupil participation in Wales, but, you know, I was regional lead for North Wales and it, it wasn't, unfortunately, it wasn't my experience. It seemed to be that schools were still very traditionally looking at uh, pupil participation as being um, school councils and that's it it didn't go much further so one of the things that we did was um, to help schools really understand how pupils could participate was to get them to understand how they could be part of the process right from the start and one of the exciting things would be when pupils would be part of the planning stages of thinking about what kind of creative practitioner they would work with to begin with and then they would be on the interview panels with teachers alongside teachers and um, creative agents as well who would be kind of a, a kind of um, uh, go-between kind of um, person in this process and that opened a lot of schools and a lot of teachers eyes to what student voice and student participation could potentially be mm -hmm. um, I remember one particular project um, and it was a, a school that was in real difficulty for many many years it had its challenges and they were really worried about this idea of putting young people these were teenagers in charge of the interviews um, they just thought that they were going to mess around that you know it was going to be a bit of a nightmare well, guess what? It was a complete shock when these interviews happened that these children took the whole process completely seriously. And within a class, they would struggle to write and it would be a real difficulty for the teachers to get them to write. But every two minutes, the pupils were asking for more paper. Can we have more paper, please? More paper. Because they were just took this responsibility so seriously. And there was a reason for them to write. You know, they suddenly were in this position of being able to um, have a sense of responsibility and really opened those teachers' eyes to 
what can happen when we think about those kind of democratic approaches to education. I agree. <laughs> Thank you, Derry. Are there any other questions? Actually, the report I wrote, gathering dust somewhere at the DFE when Creative Partnerships was wound up, all the documentation went to the DFE, and for all I know, it was incinerated. Um, but I've got a copy, and I, if, if it would be of interest to you, I'll, I'll send it to you. Please do. Yeah, thank you. I think my email um, is on there now. So, yeah, please do, Derry. Thank you. Um, so I think there's a question in the chat box. Yeah, there's an interesting question about um, art teachers that are being committed to their curriculum and kind of almost a kind of prescriptive approach. Um, and it was something that I was going to talk about, but um, I had to edit some of the things that I was going to say. Um, it, 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 it is something that um, it can be quite difficult, this idea of, you know, thinking that the arts departments and the art teachers um, are doing something, you know, that we, we all need to be learning from. Like I said, there's a lot of good practice to learn um, from um, artists and art education, but also um, I think art teachers are under the same pressures as other other teachers within the schools, and that is curriculum pressures, that is exam pressures, um, and you know the the pressure to perform. Um, and I remember that um, quite clearly when I was a secondary school teacher, of getting pupils through the process and so because you're so focused on getting through the process the kind of idea of dispositions that I mentioned um, and within lead creative schools we looked at um, Bill Lucas, Claxton and Spencer's five creative habits of mind um, as the kind of creative dispositions that we would use and they're really important to develop um, and they can be nurtured through art, but I'm not sure how much of that kind of information and education goes on in terms of when we're thinking about teacher training and so on. It's something that, you know, if I was going back to be an art um, teacher, again, I would think very, very differently about my practice and uh, how I go about delivering art education. Um, the Nottingham research paper um, that I mentioned is um, signature pedagogies, artist signature pedagogies. And I can see a colleague of mine on uh, on the screen here, Sophie. If if you can remember the authors, I can remember it as Pat Thompson and perhaps Penny Hay. Um, it is available online. If you put artist signature pedagogies into Google, it should come up. Just to say that Pat's an old friend. She, she's from Western Australia, from Perth. Yeah. And uh, she ran a very democratic school for kids with special needs in Perth. And she's very much coming from a pupil's democracy uh, viewpoint. Absolutely. She's brilliant to follow on Twitter if you, if you want somebody else to follow. That's inspirational. But Sophie, were you going to... Did you... No, I was going to say I'll I'll try and get the link. Oh, have you got oh, it? There. Someone's got it. Brilliant. Someone's got it. Brilliant. Thank yeah. you. Quick work. Thanks, Emmy. <laughs> Google skills. <laughs> I was just going to say, if I may, Nia, um, 
I had, I've just been looking at secondary schools um, in Wales who've taken part in the Lead Creative Schools project, the scheme for the last five years. And it was just a little bit of um, kind of looking at the stats, really, from those secondary schools. And interestingly, um, the majority of the programmes happened within the English or um, literacy sort of based that, that was their main basis in our in the secondary schools in my particular region. But the second most predominant um, course or um, subject area within the secondary school were the art and design departments as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether that was that came as a bit of a surprise. And then it was subjects like history and design and technology and science. By far, the majority happened in first of all. The English departments um, all had a literacy focus and then art and design. And whether that was because of a perceived expertise in the art and design departments or whether it was that there were people within those departments who were enthusiastic and committed and wanted to take the reins of a project like this. And it didn't always work out well in the sense of exactly what you were referring to, which was still... uh, a sort of slightly um, stronghold onto the original curriculum content. Thanks, Sophie. Yeah, it was interesting. It was something that we really tried to have an endeavour to do was to work with the kind of um, the subjects that possibly didn't really understand or see how um, kind of arts-based approaches or artist um, signature pedagogies could be of value to them. So, you know, we did try and target kind of the science teachers, maths teachers, English teachers. Um, so that, that was an interesting sort of journey and process in itself. Um, hello. Hi, Hi. Um, this is Lilac. I'm sorry I'm voice only because I'm having some uh, technical difficulties this morning. So, um, but I, I, great, great presentation. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I'm an architecture student. I'm actually studying in Wales, um, doing sustainable architecture. And our latest project was to look at the 21st century sort of education. And it was a very interesting process because it included the restraints of architectural education. And, And it was very it was an intense dive for me, having worked, having been involved a bit with progressive education. Um, but anyway, um, so I've read the Donaldson report, and my question is to do with process-based learning versus sort of um, outcome-based learning. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Donaldson report, there is um, there is things that might seem very opposing to each other um but i feel that unless some in, intense integration or an integrative approach is taken then we're in big trouble so for example he said that good teaching and learning means employing a blend of ap- approaches including that that promote problem solving creative and critical thinking and shortly after that it goes Good teaching and learning means employing a blend of approaches, including direct teaching. So there's a lot of things that could... It's interesting how this then gets just employed or just gets left out. And 
I last thing I, I mentioned, sorry, I, I spoke so much, but um, what I sort of came up, came up with is that this, the system called um, integral um, education. Uh, yeah. I, I started to look into a system that's based on humanistic psycho psychotherapy and psychology and integral theory. And th there is this, there is this mention of how some education system then systems then become they look like they're doing some progressive stuff but really at the end of the day it's opportunity based learning and outcome based learning there's numbers and if you meet them then we're doing well for example introduce meditation although i'm 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 on the fence as to what that means but if it improves the way science uh, grades are then that's great and how much meditation do we need? We need 10 minutes for it to be, uh, to, to, to do the best um, to, um, outcome. So we cap it at 10 minutes, for example. So yeah, I just wanted your ideas. Um, thank you, Lilac. There's um, a lot to mull over there. Um, thank you very much. You. I think you're right in that, um, so Professor Graham Donaldson um, produced a report on successful futures which led to curriculum reform in Wales. And so he um, put a lot of ideas within that report that have really actually um, transported uh, quite um, easily into the kind of new curriculum documents. Um, but as you say, I think Lila, the devil is in the detail. Um, uh, Professor Graham Donaldson talks a lot and often about repertoires, repertoire of learning. So uh, he talks about creative, creativity, creative approaches, um, critical thinking. But I think what he's trying to do is trying not to become embroiled in the kind of binary thinking that we often see on social media um, and other places in terms of thinking about one way. There's one way of approaching one pedagogy that we should all be using. I think it's moving towards this idea that, as I mentioned, this kind of instead of mindset, mind flex, thinking about, well, what's the situation? What do my learners need? And what is the best pedagogy and the best practice that I can implement and put into practice at this moment to help these learners? Rather than um, thinking in terms of comfort and kind of habitual thinking of oh, this is the way I've always done it. And so I'm just going to keep doing it this way because it sort of gets me re uh, results. It probably gets results with some students and not all students. So by moving towards uh, thinking about those kind of blended learning approaches, it, it's about thinking about variety really um, within teaching and learning. But um, I think there are going to be challenges ahead. Um, this isn't ju just small changes to a curriculum. This is going to be an existential crisis for teachers in Wales. They've never had to do this before. You know, even when we're thinking about designing an, uh, their own curriculum, they've never been trained in that. Um, so it's a big ask. Um, and, uh, you know, my feeling is that there's going to need to be more resources, more time on professional learning. And that's one of the main things, uh, kind of conclusions um, that I've really come to in 
terms of my presentation today and the last five years in particular is professional learning for teachers and professional learning for leaders unless you've got leaders to be able to really understand why we need this kind of repertoire of learning this blended learning um, then I think teachers are going to be feeling kind of left unsupported um, and feeling quite nervous about the whole thing. Can I ask um, what will happen in Wales if you've got a very creative student who says, I'm creating my own curriculum? <laughs> that would be, um, yeah, that would be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, I've been speaking to a young man recently. He's 16 years old. Um, and if you're not living in Wales, you won't know who he is. But his name's Lloyd. And um, since the start of the coronavirus, he has been at home, like all children have been, um, been a bit kind of stuck about things to do. But he enjoys maths and he enjoys statistics. And so every single day he creates tables for us here in Wales to show us what, what the picture is in terms of coronavirus every day. Um, I'm not kidding by telling you that's my go-to place every day for coronavirus news. Um, and for, you know, for someone who's 16 to be able to do that, I think is just incredible. And I remember when I was teaching, I was teaching graphic design to a young boy and um, a young boy who was a sixth former. And he was a struggle to motivate and not just for me, for all his subject teachers. And he, he didn't have bad behavior. He was really intelligent and clever um, and one day I got talking to him and I really wanted to really find out you know what was going on in terms of motivation and he said well you know he has his own business he's developed a computer site a gaming site he was making two thousand to three thousand pounds a month from this gaming site and there I was trying to teach him graphic design while he was designing his own computer programs so I think this idea of children designing their own curriculum, I think, um, really does need more thinking about. Um, I don't have an answer to your question, but I think as we move on and technology moves on, it's going to become more and more of an issue. Derry. We've got hands up from Olive and Derry. I don't know whether, oh, Olive, okay. you've been waiting a while, I think. Okay. Oh, sorry to cut across, Derry. No, no. Um. Oh, right. Um, I was just, no, I just wanted to ask you whether you were talking about primary school children or secondary children. And the second thing was, could you give us a sort of uh, a, a picture of what one of the classes with using the creative practitioners in, alongside the normal teachers would actually look like? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, um, Olive. That's um, a good point that I haven't mentioned. Um, just because we we worked with all schools, um, well, primary schools, we worked with secondary schools, and we worked with special education schools as well. Um, so that was interesting um, to see the kind of differences um, within kind of uh, openness, openness to really trial new approaches. Um, as you can imagine, when we worked with secondary schools, we mostly worked with key stage three, although there are examples of when we worked with GCSE classes. Sophie, my colleague on screen, had a brilliant project with a year 10 group of learners who were struggling in English, for example. Um, 
And then in terms of what the classes looked like and with the practitioners, the word I always used for this to describe it was a dance. If it was happening effectively, if it was happening well, if we'd put all the scaffolding and everything in its place beforehand. So we'd have teachers and artists, they would come for two, um, two days training beforehand. You know, we'd talk to them about the importance of pupil voice. We'd set all this up for them. Um, and then we'd talk about how important it was to build relationships. For me personally, I remember having a bit of a challenge with this idea of both the teacher and the practitioner thinking they were the expert and they were the main expert in the room. And sometimes we'd have to really talk about that and think, well, no, the teacher is the expert in terms of curriculum. The artist is the expert in terms of creative ideas and creative thinking. Put those two things together and that's where we kind of had the magic. So once that kind of challenge was overcome, um, they saw each other not as competition, but as a partner that they could work with. Um, I saw some amazing projects where it was kind of this dance happening. So what I mean by that is that you would have the teacher welcoming children back after lunchtime talk about the usual things in terms of you know what the aims of the afternoon were going to be what the objectives were going to be hand over to the artist the artist would um, develop a kind of creative um, program so it would be maybe slow motion animation and it was all to do I remember that lesson to do with collaboration these children in that class just couldn't work together they didn't have the skills they didn't know how to so um, the artist would set this up and the teacher would kind of stand back and watch but then it'd be handed over to the teacher again to talk about what kind of dispositions we need for good collaborative working so that you know that kind of toing and froing where for me when I observed them the most effective way of working but it didn't ever happen just naturally you know you could never just throw an artist into a classroom and just expect that to happen for main reason being that for most teachers that idea of artists working in the classroom is the artist delivering a project the teacher stands back or they go and do some marking they go and do something else they're there as a supervisor but nothing else and um this one waving at me there <laughs> and um so you know there was a lot of work a lot of setup to be done to think about the two people within the classroom being co-experts co-collaborating co-constructing Thanks, that's great. Thank you. Have we got time for one more, Derry? I wonder if you know there are five or six hundred schools around the world where, in fact, the kids do construct their own curriculum, including Ian's in Brighton, uh, though he didn't say so when he asked his question. <laughs> um, it's interesting that the uh, Economist Intelligence Unit, there, there are some powerful voices uh, that would agree with you now, Nia. The Economist Intelligence Unit, I put a reference in the chat, has just published a report for what kind of teachers are going to be required during the next 10 years, and they absolutely are along the lines um, that you've been describing. And that we had a group earlier this week which was looking at another proposal that 20% of curriculum time should be put into the hands of the kids now and negotiated with the staff. Um, so the kids will be able to construct, not just co-construct, but actually construct, make decisions about their own learning. But the need for staff training was the most important priority that came out of it. So 
to actually try to open up the mindset of teachers and particularly head teachers, as you said. Um, there's a group in Canada that's meeting this afternoon that meets twice a week. I don't know if Ian knows about it. They're called the Unschooling School Group. Um, because of the flexibilities in the Canadian system, it is actually possible for parents to present a school with an individual learning plan, an individual education plan, an IEP, and the school is to some extent obliged to deliver on it. Now, the proposal is that, that a new kind of IEP should exist called Individual Education Plan for Free Learners, and that the free learners will present the school with this request that they're able to use the school facilities and resources to develop their own curriculum, develop their own program, because they have been designated by their parents as free learners. Um, this is catching on quite fast in Canada, and I'll be at a meeting this afternoon um, when they're actually finalising the free learner individual education plan. Quite what effect it's going to have when it hits schools, I don't know. But in England, where the, the head teacher would probably just exclude the kid on the spot, in Canada that's legally impossible, and the school is obliged to attempt to meet the individual education plan that's presented by the parents. So maybe I'll keep you in touch with how that develops. Please do. That sounds fascinating. And Ian, are you going to jump in? No. Thank you. That really does sound fantastic. I'm going to look into that a lot more. Thanks, Derry. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.